Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sunday, September 11, 2022. Welcome to the 30th episode in this series from Midas Touch and 5-Minute News called The Weekend Show, where we take a deep dive into the news of the week. And please do go back and take a look at some of those 30 episodes with some amazing guests, uh, long-form conversations, a deep dive into the soul of America. You can subscribe as audio in addition to my daily 5-Minute News podcast on iTunes or wherever you get yours. Joining me today is the executive editor of Rewire News Group and co-host of the podcast Boom Lawyered, Jessica Peeklow. Jessica, welcome back. Second time. Thank you so much for having me back. Everyone's coming back on this show. Now that it's getting successful, people are like, let's let's do that conversation again. Um, <laughs> it, it seems like we've been talking about uh, the, the rise of fascism. Uh, Trump doesn't seem to have gone away, even though he's not the president anymore. There's so many kind of elements to uh, this huge shift in, a, in America, which some people say is not actually a shift at all. It's always been in hiding, but maybe it's just out there now and people aren't shy to kind of put their put their views out there. And, and I just want to start with a quote from the former president who lashed out at Biden at a rally the other day, calling him an enemy of the state. This is following uh, Biden's address to the nation. He, uh, he actually said the FBI and the Justice Department have become vicious monsters controlled by radical left scoundrels, lawyers and the media who tell them what to do. Now, this language, I mean, we really shouldn't, we shouldn't overlook this, should we? This is, this is not some kind of right-wing hack. This is the former president of the United States using this language. The former president of the United States who specifically modeled his leadership style off of authoritarian strongmen in other countries. So we absolutely should not ignore this rhetoric. Also, we shouldn't ignore it because while he may be the former president of the United States, there's nobody in the current Republican Party that's disavowing the rhetoric as well. And so we can safely assume then that he is speaking for Republicans when he says those things. Let, let's just talk about the, the mess that Trump's in. Um, and I was reading through, I mean, the, the list of cases, court cases against him and, 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 and is, is, it's unprecedented. I mean, I, I had no idea. It was, it was actually published in uh, one, of the, one of the networks published it uh, a couple of days ago. And I was scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. I mean, it's not just one or two. There's literally dozens 
of crimes that he is being, uh, you know, called into question for. Let's talk about the U.S. District Judge uh, Eileen M. Cannon, who has shot into the spotlight uh, earlier this week after granting the former president's request for an independent mediator to examine materials that the FBI recovered during the search of Mar-a-Lago. She was actually appointed by Trump in 2020. She's a member of the Federalist Society. She is effectively, you know, a far-right operative. Is Trump, like, choosing... I mean, did he, like, select a, a justice department or, or certainly uh, justices, not just in the Supreme Court, but certainly at a more local level, to protect him from prosecution? I mean, these are all loyalists. This is a grand plan, isn't it? I think this is one of the critical questions facing American democracy today. And this is not just about a Trump judge or two Trump judges. What folks listening to this show need to understand is part of the Republican project of rewriting this country's history includes capture of the federal judiciary. And this actually started during the Obama administration with Mitch McConnell running the Senate and blocking whole cloth presidential judicial appointments uh, by uh, President Obama, leaving a crisis of vacancies for the next Republican administration to fill, and fill them they did. We talk a lot about the, the three Supreme Court justices that President Trump was able to appoint during his term. We talk far less about the one in three appellate court judges that Trump and Republicans confirmed under his term, and the myriad of district court judges like Judge Cannon, um, who granted this order. And what we know about those judges is they all come from the same ideological place. So this is not a question of, is there ideological diversity within the Republican and Trump judges that have been appointed in the last four years? It is how far to the right we, are they? And I mean, we've started to see this even in this most recent order. Judge Cannon herself acknowledges that, well, you know, I probably don't really have jurisdiction to rule on this case, but there are some open questions from by my former boss. So we're going to go ahead and proceed as though. And when you have as many legal scholars weigh in as uniformly as they did afterwards in dismissing outright this opinion and not just saying this isn't a good opinion, but this is clear political work by the judiciary, that's an enormous red flag because as much as the judiciary is political in this country, legal professionals are very wary of calling out the politics in that space. And the fact that that is happening now is something that I hope people are paying attention to, because unfortunately, this is not an issue that will go away. As Democrats try and do more and more to enforce their own, whether it's a policy agenda or just the rule of law, like we are seeing with some of these January 6th proceedings, they have the one thing that, that has been consistent is uniform pushback by Republicans and a circling around of the por of the former presidents. This is terrifying for this country. There is a moment for other conservatives to stand up and say this is not what this party believes in, but they haven't done so yet. And so American the American electorate right now has to take them at their word that this is actually what they believe in. Where I come from, we don't have political judiciary it, it's it, you yeah. know they're not elected by by uh, our political um uh, candidates mm -hmm. and so 
We, and yeah, I mean, you know, our judges invariably, a lot of them are old and white and probably a bit conservative, but, but there is a kind of, you know, we don't even have a constitution. It's, it's unwritten, but it's understood. And I don't think my friends in America really understand how that's possible. No. And, it, and it's the same with the judiciary. It's like we trust that judges mm-hmm. make the right decision. What is right, no matter what your politics has has um, the American judiciary always been as politicized as this, or is this a is this a new thing? It really has been, um, and you know we had a a brief moment in this country's history where the politicization of the judiciary seemed to you know tilt a little more into a liberal and and progressive bent, but it's always been political. If you have political parties choosing judges, it's political. And the origins, I mean, this is this is so fascinating. It's one of the reasons why I enjoy speaking to you about these things is, is when you look at the origin of the judicial system here in the United States, what were folks reacting against? Well, this sense that there was not the ability to have an independent third voice hear their claims against the crown. Right. Like that is the sort of American um, uh, anxiety around establishment um, in our founding. And so the judiciary was originally designed to be the, the, the check on state power exercising over individual rights. And that's just become, you know, sort of twisted into the political fabric in a way that the judiciary is really about um, enforcing establishment rights. It's interesting you mentioned the crown. Uh, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II died on Thursday, which is why I'm wearing a, a black t- black tie out of out of respect. Um, even though I'm five and a half thousand miles away from the UK right now, and again, this mm-hmm. goes back to accountability. The, the the Queen is the head of the church in the UK. She's the head of the judiciary. She's the head of Parliament. She's the head of the royal uh, of the military as well as the royal family. Or was, I should say. We now have a king who uh, is yet to be, uh, yet to have a coronation. This might seem very alien to you, but what it does is it creates a level of accountability. Mm-hmm. Not that people might get their heads chopped off by, by the king if, if they do something bad, but it's something that is, it's very nuanced. It's up there, up high, and it basically means, look, if you're going to behave badly, you're being watched, you know, and I, and yeah. and sometimes, as much as I totally understand the the fabric of of the republic and the American Constitution, mm-hmm. wouldn't it be nice if there was someone above the president? Because we now know that you know Donald Trump, if he was indeed sharing nuclear secrets, also had access to the nuclear codes, and there is nobody to stop him yeah. from pressing that button. Nobody. There is no system in place above the president to prevent him launching a nuclear war. I mean, we got very lucky here in the US for four years that we didn't all get obliterated. We really did. And I think, you know, one of the, oh, I don't know, sort of naive assumptions written into uh, the US Constitution is the idea of checks and balances really continuously playing out. In theory, all 
three of our judicial branches are supposed to equally weigh in um, on our decision making, on the process. And sure, some have supremacy in moments of that of time, but generally they share power. In theory, the Supreme Court could be a check on the executive, except that we have a bunch of Supreme Court justices who are not only appointed by a former president who is facing some very serious allegations against national security interests, but they themselves are on record as believing in a theory called the uniform, the unity of the executive, which is effectively that what the president says and does is the word of law. There is no check on the executive. And that is not something that is actually ingrained in American judicial uh, judicial history. That is not part of our common legal understanding, but it is a part of conservative authoritarianism that has been read into the law over time, and it has reached its apex with this particular former president in this particular political party with this particular Supreme Court. How effective is this going to be? Some people are saying it's going to put an end to the Justice Department's investigation of Trump, and others are saying it's just going to delay it. Uh, even a special master, I and mean, it's a bit late, you know, yeah. the Justice Department have already done all of their analysis of the materials taken. He waited three weeks for this. I mean, yeah. you know, what will be the effect of, of Eileen Cannon's ruling? I mean, some of it remains to be seen. You know, um, it will definitely delay things. It will slow things down in the legal proceedings. Now, I, you know, the judge's ruling came out and then there were news reports of the substance of the documents that were, you know, that were in Trump's possession. So I do think that that is some honestly some smart tactical lawyering going on, because as I have said in social media spaces, the court of public opinion is absolutely a legitimate jurisdiction to play out some of these allegations and some of this evidence. In fact, it's a necessary one, particularly if we have political appointees in the judicial branch that are blocking the public's access to information of something of such a critical nature. So that, I think, is absolutely, um, you know, I know conservatives are very upset about that. But hey, look, I mean, this is this is a the stakes are very high. Um, will this ultimately prove victorious for the former president? I don't know. I mean, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, it's not just one judge that he's appointed. Um, there are lots of, of ideologues and loyalists that are ingrained in the federal judiciary, and they're there for life unless we do something about the structure of the federal judiciary uh, on a political level. And the Supreme Court. Three of those are his appointments. And we're now discovering that even the likes of Clarence Thomas, who is purely a vessel for his wife, right? He he is a he he is a everything is done by proxy. She she might as well sit on the Supreme Court herself, Ginny Thomas. And yet she hasn't been called in for questioning. You know, she has she is walking free, still spout you know, spouting all of this far right propaganda and it turns out that she effectively tried to get the election overturned directly. I mean, there's so much evidence now. What does this do for people like yourself, American citizens, just not in your professional life, but in your personal life to know that 
a guy who was the president has committed more crimes than in most criminals are currently incarcerated is likely going to walk free because he is white, he is rich, and he, you know, has conservative judges working for him. So I am of the age where I'm married um, and I was I was born in the 70s. And one of the you know interesting little data points in our household is that while we're only a few months apart, my husband and I were born under different presidential administrations. And that's because uh, I was born under Nixon and he was born under Ford. And so while the level of criming that the former president uh, Trump has done certainly pale makes what the Nixon administration did look like kids play, absolute child's play. Unfortunately, in this country, we do have a history of presidents behaving extraordinarily badly, breaking laws for their own political ends, and the political establishment walking away from it. So I preface that by saying there's part of me that is unfortunately not surprised by how some of this is playing out because there would have to be a deep political reckoning in this country for true accountability to happen. Um, And this country's refusal to hold President Nixon accountable for his crimes in Watergate unfortunately makes it much easier to not hold President Trump accountable for his crimes now, even though though we are talking crimes of such a magnitude. I hope that is not the case. But unfortunately, that is the reality of American political history as well. And still, the ultra-maga Republicans are sticking with him. There doesn't seem to be, it's like, what has to happen for these people to be like, you know something, there's like 50 cases against him. All of his businesses previously have failed. You know, Trump University payoffs because people were suing him, the the stakes, the ties made in China. I mean, there's so much stuff, you know, just like even comical stuff that goes, that follows this guy around, as well as the very serious stuff of overturning an election and, and the like, and stealing official secrets, which, of course, Mm -hmm. might in some way trump the insurrection. I mean, mean. it's, it's just beggar's belief. And still, it's almost as if the worse he is, the more badly behaved he is, the more vile he is and aggressive and refer referring to the current president as the enemy of the state, the more they want to be part of it. They love the fact that he's a rebel and to the detriment of their own lives. Yeah. I mean, he is, you know, President Trump is really, truly the most P.T. Barnum-esque, Mark Twainian type of political candidate that this country has really ever seen, a creature of the worst impulses of pop culture, the worst impulses of political culture, the worst impulses of American culture, and packaged up for a rabid audience. I mean, it is, I, I use those two entertainment literary figures for very real reasons, because I think that Twain had a particular ability picked up maybe only by Molly Ivins later in this country to really cut through the BS in American politics and show it for the snake oil, like Wild West salesmanship that it really, truly is more often than not. 
and packaged up with P.T. Barnum's Roadshow. I mean, that is what the MAGA experience in this country is now. But people traditionally hate politicians, not just in America, but all over the world. And the weird thing is that there's no training to be a politician. You know, you can't study for it in college or university. To I want to be a politician. You know, you, you can study mm-hmm. politics and history, but it's not the training ground required. It seems to me that the training ground to be a successful politician is to host a celebrity <laughs> or reality TV show and to, uh, to, to swear a bit. I mean, I, I actually interviewed, and we never aired it because it was riddled with misinformation, but I actually interviewed a, a, a Republican um, former White House staffer and I, I said to her, why, why did you, like, what were you, why were you drawn to Trump in the first place? And she said to me, you know, it was when he did those debates with Hillary initially, those those candidate debates, and he was just so, like, horrible to her, just said, you know, you're a, you're a politician. That's what drew her to him. And, I've, and, and none of the other stuff, you know. And I was like, wow, it really is as simple as that. It's like mm-hmm. being, being a, a, an aggressor. You know, for all our talk of equality and trying to bring harmony and and inclusivity to to the world, a a white bully, male bully, drew the attention of men and women across the country enough so that they voted for him to win. Yeah. And, and would likely vote for him again. I mean, so not to just keep referencing my deep Gen X roots here, but yeah. I think about this all the time in terms of the movies that I grew up watching. You can't watch a John Hughes film without seeing a Trumpian character that's actually one of the heroes cast in it. The We love a bully in this country, and I don't understand why, but we really, truly do. Maybe that is more of our sort of psychological regression from, you know, uh, seeing ourselves as former colonies. I don't know. Like, I really, truly don't understand it. But there is something ingrained in the psyche, particularly conservative psyche um, of this country that really appreciates punching down. The rest of the world really isn't like any of this. You know, I mean, I, I've, I've traveled to dozens and dozens and dozens of countries. I've been blessed to have traveled my whole life. You know, even as a child, my mum was a tour guide in Italy. And so we would be I, I went to Rome like 14 times before I was like 14 years of age. That's fantastic. It was the most amazing uh opportunity to see other cultures now obviously italy's had its problems and berlusconi served time in prison talk about a strong man right right right? but this is this is the example isn't it and yet you know i scream sometimes when i hear you know what i wake up each morning and i'm like what's going to be the big trump story today and it's not just since he left office, but that was very prevalent during his four years in office, yeah. whether it be using a Sharpie to extend a, a hurricane or even suggesting that maybe he could nuke the hurricane because it was heading for one of his resorts and he didn't, <laughs> he didn't have to deal with rebuilding um, every single day. And, and yet here we are after the, the event and it's still happening. Now, the news media, and I just want to talk about them for a moment, have played a huge part in the rise of him and of galvanizing his rhetoric. And he knows that and they know that he is great for business. Yeah, I mean, it's a codependent relationship. 
We should not have journalists at major publications in this country withholding important information about holding a, whether it's the Trump administration or any presidential yeah, administration, frankly, to account for their, to sell books. Yeah. I, that is unheard. Of. What is going on? Like as a journalist, that is one of the most appalling things that I have seen most recently. And that's not even say you know the new ownership of Politico now you know praying for Trump to remain in office. What is that about? How can people who are just trying to live their lives, work their jobs, pay their rent or mortgage, like get their kids to and from school in a safe manner in this country, take the time to parse through the political beliefs of media ownership or individual journalists to suss out the accuracy or not thereof of information that they're getting in the media, let alone treating all of this this being the legacy of American democracy as something that is a horse race. Like the idea that what is happening with around, you know, the January 6th investigations and the former president right now as some sort of both sides ism is political journalistic malpractice in my mind. But this actually talks to America generally, doesn't it? You know, as we as we were discussing earlier with the judiciary, this talks to the fact that even journalists have been infiltrated by this American like it's a, it's a combination of the American dream, the Wild West, you know, the, the, the old cowboys and Indians, every man for himself. You can make it, but you might have to steal it. You, you know, you might have to sell your mother if it, if it gets you there. And it doesn't matter if you're a, a journalist because everybody has their price. I mean, it, it, there is this is a heavily unregulated country. And, you know, I'm not just talking about laws on the statute. And this goes back to uh, the late Her Majesty the Queen and, 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 and monarchies, not just in Britain, but the rest of the world. It, it is just something that makes you want to be a little bit more respectful and upstanding of the fact that you can't take the country down because it belongs to somebody. I mean, mm-hmm. is that what it is? Is America just the Wild West and everybody's been infected by this? I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, this is as a graduate student, my entire like course of study was the ways in which, you know, the, the myth of manifest destiny in this country got played out in ways that were very bad for women and people of color in particular, uh, in policy ways. So the ways in which we absolutely tell the story of who we are as an American and how it shapes our yeah. policy decisions thereof. I think they are inextricably intertwined. And we hear it all the time. I mean, you know, even now. So, I mean, I I do think that there is something to that. You know, I also do really think that there is a sense that, you know, for conservatives especially, they're entitled to power. Like one of the refrains that we hear in national down to local elections is that Democrats, if they win elections, that can't be legitimate. Like the idea of Democrats governing as a basic principle is illegitimate in the minds of conservatives. And so, again, that suggests that the conservative party has become an authoritarian party because what they are unable to do is even imagine 
coalition governing, let alone being a minority party for a period of time in this country. This plays out very um, conveniently for the story that broke uh, a couple of days ago about the uh, Oath Keepers. This is the names of hundreds of U.S. law enforcement officers, elected officials, military members appearing on a leaked membership role of the far-right extremist group that's accused of playing a, a key role in the uh, insurrection on January 6. Uh, and, of course, it was a, um, um, a conspiracy charge that, uh, you know, the leader of this uh, group was, was found on. Uh, The Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism poured over 38,000 names on this leaked Oath Keepers membership list. It identified more than 370 people that it believes currently work in law enforcement, including as police chiefs and sheriffs and more than 100 people who are currently members of the military. I mean, (laughs) is this the Wild West that I have been talking about? Is this this kind of secret... Uh, operation that's going on where there are people who take these roles, you know, these leadership roles or law enforcement roles, because they know secretly one day that they might have to use their weapon for something other than law enforcement. Well, with Stuart Rhodes and the Oath Keepers, absolutely. It wasn't even very secretive. I mean, he's a Yale Law graduate, so he knows exactly what he's doing with this group. And there, you know, there are ancillary groups as well. There's a constitutional sheriff's group that um, is not officially part of the Oath Keepers, but are up for election, local elections and absolutely share their values. What I think is really interesting about the Oath Keepers, so this is going to be a long uh, way to answer yes to your question. But one of the things that I think is really really interesting about the Oath Keepers is and the law enforcement ties is obviously this is this is very terrifying, right? Because this is truly like this is an extremist group with uh, very racist, anti-misogynistic beliefs as part of their core. When we look at the at the founding of law enforcement and this country, This is where it comes from, though. Our police forces were a result of the unraveling of chattel slavery in this country. Posse comitatus laws were designed to bring back runaway slaves into the fold. So law enforcement in this country, its origins have always been very white, very conservative, and very much about establishing a particular status quo. So that's what Stuart Rhodes and the Oath Keepers call back to, and they do it very openly and honestly. And I hope that this gives us an opportunity to talk more about that in the country generally. But I think in terms of January 6th, what folks need to understand is that there are members of the military, of law enforcement, of first responders who took an oath to uphold the Constitution that they don't actually believe in. And when push comes to shove, may likely not be there. And what would that mean? Like, had some of those folks in the uppermost echelon of the Oath Keepers in law enforcement been successful, January 6th would have looked very differently. We would have be we would be having a very different conversation if we would be having one at all. Well, there was a county commissioner there who who has just lost his yes, job, right? Yes, out here who in New was- Mexico. Cowboys for right, Trump, who, the founding member for Cowboys for Trump. And he, w- he was just like opening the gates and letting yeah. people in and encouraging. He didn't even go in the building. Yeah. I mean, he was he was encouraging 
it to to happen. And and as we now know, um, a lot of these militia groups who weren't wearing their militia outfits were positioned so that they were the ones who broke down the barriers to allow the mob to enter. This was very calculated. I mean, it looked like it was random, but we've learned so much courtesy of the the January 6th investigation. I just want to go back to racism. The point that you make about you know, the, the this list of Oath Keepers and how racism is very much at the, the heart of America's founding. I mean, before Derek Chauvin was filmed executing George Floyd and then was prosecuted and, and uh, incarcerated, police officers just got away with this, didn't they? They still and, and, and get away I'm with a, it. They still kind of get away with it. But I was of the impression, and I've said this before on the program, but I'll say it again, I think Derek Chauvin knew that Donald Trump was the president. So it didn't matter if he was being filmed. He'd get away with it. Yeah. I mean, you know, when the then candidate, you know, Trump said, well, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and nobody would do anything about it. That was a very clear signal for lawlessness across the board. Um, Was he saying I could shoot a black person on Fifth Avenue? Do you think in his mind it was like, I'm a white guy and I could shoot a black guy? I mean, no one's ever really said that no, about that No, but I mean, I think before, you can put that in parentheses, right? Yeah. Like, it's, a, it's, it's kind of implied, you know, or a woman, you know, homeless yeah. person, yeah. you know? I mean, the, it's the punching down, right? It's the, it's the using violence to maintain social order. He mentioned something at that police federation event. Do you remember where he told them not to put criminals' heads, push criminals' heads down when they're going in the back of the police vehicle? He said, let them hit their yeah. heads. I mean, it was a small thing, but it's a call to action. Yeah. He knows that, that you know, a, a good number of these police officers will be far right and, and, and right wing and, and authoritarian in nature because those types of people are often drawn to the police service. Exactly. So he was he was playing to the gallery. Exactly. And the police union itself plays to all of that, right? I mean, police training in this country is about warrior training. The police training is military training in this country. It is indistinguishable. And no de-escalation training. It's it's all about, you know, just get in there. And the one time we needed it, which was Uvalde, nothing. No. Isn't that crazy? That that they can be so they can be so aggressive when chasing a black man who's running away. And yet be so hands off when it's a white guy with a gun shooting children. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about the political rhetoric that fuels into that, I mean, you know, speaking of the former president, kicked off his presidential campaign calling all Mexican rapists, you know. So there are yeah. the the large points and the small points all thread together. Um, and, you know, we need to be talking about them together. This is as as much of a sort of you know sort of buffoonish type of character as Donald Trump can be this is a man who has existed in media spaces as a professional in media spaces mm. for the entirety of his adult life and we as journalists and uh, folks who are concerned about the uh, the direction that this country is going need to take his ability to manipulate media and play audiences as absolutely part of the governing strategy. 
It, it says a lot, doesn't it, when everybody in Trump's orbit who has been accessible by the justice system is now either wearing an electronic tag or in prison or be, has been indicted. Um, and, you know, I think of Paul Manafort, you know, who, who yeah. famously was, you know, the, the campaign chairman very early on and was had ties to Russia. And I must recommend, actually, I don't know if you've seen it, but there is a, a, a I think it's mostly accurate, but there is a, um, a Showtime uh, two-part show uh, called the Co- the the Comey Rule, I uh, with Brendan Gleeson playing Donald Trump, and it's it's like two ninety minute episodes about the the lead up to the election, and then once Trump got elected, and it really is a, an education into the level of um, corruption and criminal activity that went on. There was that famous meeting at Trump Tower where a Russian, this woman, a Russian operative was brought in and they said, tell us everything you know about Hillary Clinton. And yet they told the public that it was a meeting about child trafficking or something. Very interesting. Layers and layers and layers of criminal activity. And yet still people see him as a bit of a buffoon. And as you say, he is not. No, um, but the buffoonery is absolutely part of the bit, right? Like Part of the show, yeah. It's the it's the P.T. Barnum. I mean, I would say it's P.T. Barnum meets meets Mussolini. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. that's kind of where I put him. Let's talk about someone who was in the room where it happened. Someone who was in that uh, meeting, uh, Steve Bannon, who uh, himself uh, two shirts and a and a jacket. I think the the first shirt stops the sweat from coming through the second shirt. That's just a theory. I I, I might be wrong. Um, he um, is a longtime ally of uh, Donald Trump, as we know. He actually surrendered on Thursday to face charges in New York, alleging that he duped donors who gave money to build a wall on the U.S. southern border, uh, a state-level reboot of a federal case that ended with a presidential pardon last year. You may remember Trump pardoned Bannon in the last hours of his presidency. Well, um, Bannon was charged with money laundering and conspiracy in connection with his role in the fundraising effort to privately underwrite the construction of the U.S.-Mexico border wall, according to the indictment that was unsealed on Thursday. I mean, you know, this is yet again another example of the grift. And in fact, I want to change the name of this show and turn it to the the grift special, right? This this really is the grift edition because... I have learned, and I didn't kind of realize initially, that all of this is a money-making exercise for Donald Trump and his people. This is, a, this, is, this is just about revenue, whether it be Truth Social, the social yeah. media stuff, or whether it be the, the PAC, and we'll talk about the PAC, the Save America PAC, in just a little bit. They are making a fortune, and they are not spending it on the things they say they are. And it's his people, poor people often, who are MAGA supporters who are giving their last dime to pay for their lavish lifestyles. Yeah. It's the ultimate grift. I mean, even a second campaign is about washing money in some degrees, right? Um, Just moving piles of money from one suspected location to another. This is the Trump family story. And they've realized that politics is is the place where they can take their showmanship and their, you know, um, tendency to hawk 
crap goods and sort of bring them together, right? I mean, that's we instead of Trump stakes, we had a Trump administration, um, but they're still selling us bunk goods. It's so interesting to me that, you know, scams often happen in plain sight, don't they? Yeah. You know, it's like these are the ones that are the hardest ones to spot. They're just so in your face that you're like, well, this can't be a scam. Yeah. How can it be a scam? And Trump's very good at, like, talking outside of the environment that he's in. And this is why he was so successful during those televised yeah. debates, right? Because, you know, Hillary Clinton was like being a... Uh, and even Joe Biden in the second set of debates was like being official and being uh, political and being responsible. And Trump's like, ha ha, I'm not responsible. Stick with me. I'll tell you the truth. And it's very disarming, isn't it? It's very clever. And Hillary Clinton has admitted to her regret of not taking him on in a more uh, unofficial capacity at those debates. Is this, I mean, is this the reason why Republicans, certainly traditional Republicans, Mitch McConnell, the the Senate Republicans, congressional Republicans, are so keen to have Trump as their as their man because he can operate in that space between politics and the voter? Yeah, I mean, what Trump really did for the Republican Party was channel the energy of the megachurch TV preacher in right. American politics. So it's all of the like razzle dazzle of the megachurch production. And if folks have never seen a megachurch like production on a Sunday, it it rivals any stadium concert that like you 2 or the Rolling Stones could put on. Truly, it is that much. So that sense of like big religious tent revival energy, which feels anti-establishment just in its vibe, that is the perfect foil for quote unquote establishment Republicans in this country who go to the country clubs and don't sort of, you know, party among the masses the same way the Trump supporters do. But they're all on the same team. I mean, you know, that is that is just optics for the press, frankly, and for more wealthy, well-heeled white Americans who vote Republican to feel like they can distance themselves from the worst elements of those policies. I mean, I think on a micro level, we're starting to see that in this country, even as Republican politicians move away from some of their very outrageous statements on abortion as a result of some contested races now. They're finding out that's not quite as popular, so they're backing away from that. Have their policy positions changed? No, not at all. They're just not saying things in public the same way that they did. So it's an artificial it's an artificial distinction. But I will give the Trump team all sorts of credit for putting on one hell of a show for this country in that sense. And embracing the, the the Christian right and the evangelical Christianity, which is the, the you know the the, the largest uh, religious movement in America, yeah, is very clever, isn't it? Because you've now got preachers in sneakers on stages up and down the country, yeah. who are not spouting the word of God but the word of Trump. Exactly. I mean, it's like they're his surrogates, you know, it, it is. And, it, and it's very stealth like because these things are not televised. They happen in private. And as you say, these mega churches can have tens of thousands of people showing up for worship. 
Um, and worship really is the word, isn't it? You know, that, that really is the thing here. We are seeing people worshipping Trump like a godlike yeah. character. And that's why they overlook his his crimes, I guess, because they think that he is God-given. Yeah. They, they legitimately believe this. And in fact, in certain evangelical uh, circles, the idea of the prophet being among the most flawed is has a lot of traction as well. So, yeah. I mean, it's it's weird and wild times in this country, unfortunately. Let, let's just finish up talking about the uh, PAC. Uh, this is the, the news that's just broken that a federal grand jury investigating the activities leading up to the January 6th attack and the push by the former president to overturn the election have now expanded its probe to include seeking information about his leadership PAC, Save America. Uh, the interest in the fundraising arm came to light as part of grand jury subpoenas seeking documents, records and testimony from potential witnesses. I mean, this is just an extension of the of the grift, isn't it? And, and, and this is also partly why he hasn't announced officially that he's running for office, because he can use these funds for whatever he likes. There's, there's no campaign finance laws right. preventing him. Right. Precisely. And that's why I, you know, I had said even this like supposed reelection that he's doing, is it a reelection or is it just a way for him to launder money? Who's to say? We don't know. I mean, really, and does it matter? Because it's still dominating the conversation while Ron DeSantis can be out there campaigning and on the same exact, maybe even amplified platform, you know, and a lot of the attention is, is on Trump and his legal woes right now. I mean, rightly so. We should we should pay attention to all the bad actors is what I'm saying there. Um I, you know, I think it's very smart for um, folks at the Department of Justice and in state attorney general's offices to be following the money, because what we know is that this is a moneyed up, mobbed up kind of operation that the Trumps run. And that's usually where we have our most success in terms of doing prosecutions. I guess he's waiting for the midterms, isn't he, to see the results of that before he thinks about announcing i mean i personally think he'll announce because he thinks it'll protect him from prosecution yeah. which it which it won't i mean certainly not for a couple of years but it um i think the 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 midterms are going to be a barometer now the polls i was looking at um uh, 538 and uh nate silver's polls which some people are question you know but I, I, it really has turned. The tide has turned for the Democrats. You know, uh, the, the speech that, that uh, Biden gave has given him all of this renewed energy. I hope it stays. I, I really, truly hope it stays. Um, I, you know, the... The reality in this country is, is that um, the governing party never usually does well um, in midterm elections, that there is always a bit of a backlash. I do feel like there are a couple things that are separating this midterm election cycle out from other midterm election cycles of the past. One of them being an ongoing espionage uh, investigation of the former president might have some bearing, I think, too, as American uh, voters just start to tune in more and more to the ways in which conservatives have been governing recently in their own backyards, that turns a lot of folks off. And I'm hoping that the Democratic uh, turnout, the vote um, efforts can overcome the really entrenched gerrymandering that Republicans have done in a lot of districts to kind of entrench their power. Because it is absolutely true in 
in this country that we have minority rule in a lot of states. People talk about how terrible Texas is, but Texas does not, Texas policies does not reflect the will of a lot of Texas voters. If you look at the way those those uh, congressional districts are drawn and people vote, it's bonkers. No wonder the state is the way that it is, is all that I'm saying. <laughs> And we've seen that in Kansas recently with abortion. And we, we've also, it's, it's a good chance that even in Florida, yeah. uh, DeSantis and his views about the way the, 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 the state should operate is very different to uh, a good number of Floridians. Yeah. yeah. But because of how the system has been rigged, and this sort of brings our conversation full circle to the judiciary and Trump judges, it is increasingly impossible for people to feel represented in their governing bodies in this country. So, One of the silver linings to the creeping authoritarianism from the conservative movement that I hope for is an opportunity to do some real structural civic reforms that this country is long overdue for. Okay. We have to end there, but I'm very thrilled for the for the conversation. I always enjoy your insight. And uh, do you want to just tell us a a little bit about your uh, podcast just so that people can Oh, sure. Thank you. I co-host a podcast called Boom Lawyered with uh, Amani Gandhi. She's a brilliant legal journalist. And we are uh, premiering again October 3rd. Uh, We loosely follow the Supreme Court's term. um, And so this season, we are going to be taking a very critical eye to the court um, and the encroaching theocracy that the Supreme Court uh, justices seem intent on um, imposing on this country. So it's lots of fun. We are irreverent. And while we're both lawyers, uh, we we I would just say that we give the Supreme Court and the legal institutions the respect that they are due. <laughs> Amazing. OK, uh, Jessica Piclo, thank you so much for joining us on The Weekend Show. And hopefully we'll talk again. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. My thanks to Jessica Piclo. I'm Anthony Davis. Don't forget to subscribe to The Weekend Show on YouTube or as an audio podcast. Do check out those 29 previous episodes to this one. And also don't forget the 5-Minute News daily podcast, which drops every morning so you can listen whilst you make your morning coffee and leave an iTunes review. Join me next week with a brand new special guest and three more factual news stories to discuss on the 5-Minute News Weekend Show with Midas Touch. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.